0: Okay, so week three here. Week three, Old Testament survey. Who's been able to be here all three weeks so far? Good. I don't mean that to be like, you know, raise your hand, look at it down at everybody else and be like, a shame. Uh, I just want to know if you, you can track where this fall with us and follow us. If not, and you want the notes, uh, or maybe you're here tonight and Encourage to find some notes, but we, if, you, if you can't tell by what you've got in your hands, we like to give you plenty of uh, resources uh, to kind of help follow along, and so uh, we pray that you'll take full advantage of that. Um, so as we start tonight, we, we ended last week, really we kind of just briefly went over the Tower of Babel and made like a sentence or two, because we were running short of time, um, but we did end up actually skipping verses, uh, chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Genesis as we go through our Old Testament survey, and so let's go back there now, and, and what we see and this particular passage, in these two passages, is how God is providentially, again, after the flood of Noah, repopulating the earth by God's grace. Remember, Noah and his family are the only ones who survived the great flood. And so in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, God makes a covenant with Noah. We actually call this the Noahic Covenant, very cleverly named. And he uh, commands Noah to, see if this sounds familiar, be fruitful multiply and fill the face of the earth. Well, in verse 21 of chapter 9, Noah, who's now a farmer, he gets drunk off his own produce and he passes out. His son, Ham, acts wickedly against him while he's asleep. And so Noah wakes up, he curses Ham for his wickedness, and, and yet he blesses his other two sons who acted righteously in this event. Among one of those is a man called Shem. We'll come back to him in a minute. So, so chapter 10 then gives us another genealogy of all of Noah's sons. And, and we've included actually a chart at the end of your uh, notes here uh, from a place called BibleHistory.com uh, of who they are and what nations they bring about after the Tower of Babel. And so that's just a resource. There's, I mean, um, there's no purpose in case you just like history and want to know, uh, but that will help you kind of see... Uh, a little bit of that. Uh, But in chapter 10, verse 32, really kind of sums up uh, all of what happens in those chapters uh, for us. It says uh, that these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations, and from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And so really, if you look at where we left off last week in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Uh, In verses 10 through 32, it's a retelling of this genealogy in chapter 10, but it's got a more specific focus. That's what you have there uh, in your notes. Uh, The first genealogy in chapter 10 is going to set up a contrast for us. and The contrast is this. It's between God's gracious provision, provision is that fill-in-the-blank, as literally, again, the nations are being birthed through mankind's fruitful multiplication. God is... Recreating what was destroyed in the flood versus the contrast here is versus mankind's rebellious sin, right? We see that mankind's rebellious sin in chapter 11, where they take the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what do they do with it? Let us make a name for ourselves and stay here and build this tower, right? That's exactly what they do, the exact opposite of that. They refuse to to fill the earth. They stayed together in one place instead. The second genealogy, this retelling, it's got a familiar ring to it because the Bible is narrowing now its focus uh, in these lines, these genealogical lines. And so, uh, the, the contrast there in the second genealogy is it narrows the focus to one line and that's the line of Shem. Okay? S-H-E-M. And it's narrowing that line for a purpose. It's bringing us to where this the story is going to continue to unfold through the life of another man. Anybody know who that man is coming up? Is the next big character in Genesis that we'll study tonight? Abram. Absolutely. Good. You trying to judge by the length of the, the line there what to put down? Uh, yeah, I do that. It's okay. So, again, as we talked about last week, remember before we dive in each week, we've got to look at the context. Uh, Remember, we gave you three particular contexts that we look into before we study the Scriptures. Anybody know uh, what those contexts are? Anybody can remember one? You didn't think I was going to ask you questions tonight, did you? Historical. Historical context, absolutely. Which means, who's the author? Who's the audience? When was it written? Why did he write it, right? That's historical context. What's another one? Textual. Literary or textual context, right? Which is? What took place before this in the story? What took place after this in the story? What's the genre of this story? That's another one. But here's the big one. The last one is redemptive historical context. Does anybody know what we mean by redemptive historical context? How it points to Jesus. Exactly. Right. The Bible is. How many stories are in the Bible? One. One big story. Right. The Bible is one big story. It's otherwise called biblical theology, and it's all centered upon uh, God redeeming his people from their sin. Okay, And so today, as we finish our study in Genesis, let's go through the context. Moses is still our author. As mentioned, the last two weeks he's able to write these things because the events described here were revealed to him by God, likely at some point at Mount Sinai. Uh, What's new when we get to chapter 12 is that now we can begin to more clearly assign some of the dates to when these events occurred. We'll actually pick up today with Abraham, whose story we can actually date sometime during the beginning of the second millennium B.C. That's about 2,000 years B.C., uh, give or take 100 years or so. That's an estimate, of course. And and we'll cover all the way through the life of Joseph, whose death we can date somewhere around 1,800 B.C. So I don't know if you're very good at math, but that gives us roughly about 200 years of history that we'll be covering today, but, but really uh, the amount of time covered isn't as important as how much of God's redemptive plan is covered, right? <clears throat> Last week, I hope you'll remember, we talked about that redemptive history, again, God's work of history and redeeming a people from the fall of sin and death, and, and so far where we got is the understanding that we've seen God make the promise that there will be one descendant of Eve, Genesis 3.15, that will eventually triumph over Satan and reverse the effects of the fall. From that point, Genesis 3 through chapter 11, we've seen God preserve that promise, haven't we? While nonetheless dealing with humanity in their sin. We've seen uh, Eve's godly descendants persevere in the world. Uh, even while those who continue to hate God have tried to do them harm and even kill them all. Uh, we describe that as enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Remember, we said the rest of the story of Scripture is really the unfolding of that promise in Genesis 3.15, which will ultimately culminate when Christ and Satan do battle with the cross, and then now when we await the return of Jesus. So uh, today, what we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see that promise that God made to the woman reaffirmed, that her lineage will be carried forward, but this time it will be through one specific family, the descendants of Abraham. It's as though there's now a a narrowing of the focus. we got the promise in Genesis 3.15. We've seen humanity expanded, and now we're coming back to a little bit of a narrower focus from the entire world to the exact line of descendants that will begin to look for the birth of the Savior into the world. Uh, Let's look at the theme. The theme's a little bit shorter this week. The last two weeks, usually in a theme, you want to give one or two sentences, not six uh, paragraphs. But uh, we just have one paragraph tonight. We can summarize these chapters, uh, 12 through 50, of Genesis this way. You've got it there in your notes. God made a gracious covenant with one man and with his descendants, through which all the families of the earth will be blessed. He will be their God with them as his special people in his chosen place through a unique relationship under his rule. So today we'll see lots of things. We'll see what a covenant is, which is very important. We'll actually even talk about something like election of, of one particular family who will become a nation with a land, what it means that he is their God and they are his special people by faith and how that will indeed bless the rest of the world. In other words, God is establishing his kingdom through Abraham. Now, this is another thing that I've talked about probably at nauseum when it comes to uh, Sunday mornings, but I probably haven't explained very well. When we talk about God's kingdom, there are three aspects we typically talk about at God's kingdom. Do you know what they are? See, I told you I didn't do a good job explaining it. All right, we talk about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is, again, a huge thread of scripture. Biblical redemption is about this. We're looking for God's people. We talked about this one last Sunday in God's place under God's rule. That's an easy way to define the kingdom, and that's exactly what we're looking for when we talk about the building of the kingdom of God. That's what we talk about. God's people and God's place under God's rule. And and this motif is actually going to serve us all throughout the study of the Old Testament. So memorize this. Anytime we talk about the kingdom of God, this is what we mean. God's people and God's place under God's rule. You've got an outline there with with some pivotal texts. Uh, notice just quickly, we won't really talk about them tonight, but Ishmael and Esau get their own sort of sections there in pivotal text, just because they will not be in the line of the covenant, and yet their descendants are... Mentioned, uh, So they get smaller chunks, but they're still in there with pivotal text because they play a huge role in the story of redemptive history as well. And then we're going to go ahead and skip now to the theme text. Uh, this is kind of just little chunks of Scripture. We're going to look at through 12 through 50 that really kind of reiterate or expound what our theme is for that big, big chunk of theme we gave. Okay? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You should be able to get the first fill in the blank there. Okay, We start with the story of Abraham who was originally named Abram. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. I know we just talked about this in serve as a picture of God uh, promising that he was going to send the gospel to the nations. In fact, Travis, you read that for us, didn't you, in that time? Uh, so somebody besides Travis can read Genesis 12, 1 through 3 when you get there for us. Put a hand up, if you will. Go ahead, Brock. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kin." Father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make for you great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and so that you I will curse. And in you all families of there shall be blessed. Now again, these are verses that are foundational to the rest of the Bible. So if you don't have these circled or underlined or marked. If you do that in your Bible, do it. Because these are this is the beginning. Of God's dealing with Abraham, which is going to again be a theme that it will dominate almost the entirety of the rest of Scripture, and so in these promises we see God's purposes in His kingdom. And what's God's purposes in His kingdom? That was people there in His place under His rule. That's good. All right, good. I'm glad we we went through that. Okay, those are the outlines there. God's purpose in His kingdom is to see His people. In His place, under His rule. You know why this is so important for us in the story? Because you'll notice as you read throughout redemptive history, this is never really fully realized in all of Scripture. Either God's people are His people and He's called their people, and they're living under His rule, but they're not in His place. Or He's got a people, and they are in His place, but they're not living under His rule. And this will really never be fully realized until... The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is what we're building and a part of it starts, it's initiated in the gospel, right? We are God's people as Christians. We are in God's place with his spirit dwelling among us as his brethren in his church. And we are, are we living under God's rule? Well, not perfectly, but who did? Jesus did. Do you understand this? This is the beauty of this, that God's person came for God's place to go, prepare God's place, and live perfectly under His rule to establish the kingdom. And so, this is why you need, you need to kind of keep this in your mind because that's specifically when we go through Second Samuel, you'll see this as a recurring theme. When we talked about even Sunday, the place of Mahanaim going outside the Promised Land, you might think, well, "What in the world would be the significance of that?" This is the significance of that, right? This is not the purpose of God's kingdom, the kingdom that He came to build in redemptive theology again. So we'll look at each of these components of the kingdom, but we're going to go a little bit out of order. We'll start with the idea that God promises Abraham a land. God promises Abraham a land. This happens in verse 1 and verse uh, 6 and 7. This becomes more explicit there. and So this land is significant because what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? That's right. So think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, We've got God's people, God's place, under His rule. What happened with sin? They're broken, right? We see that now they're going to be two people. <laughs> There's going to be a line of descendants of Eve and a line of descendants of the serpent. We see that they've been kicked out of God's place and they've rejected God's rule. Again, I'll, I'll, you're going to hear me say that over and over again. That's okay. Uh, but they were. They were kicked out of the most perfect land there ever was in Eden. Eden was a place where God's people could have fellowship and relationship with God and each other. So I hope you'll remember, I've been saying this for the last two weeks, that God's plan of redemption is aimed at bringing his people to a perfect land where they can have perfect love and perfect fellowship with God and each other. So this land being promised to Abraham is not Eden. And it's not the new heavens and the new earth. That new recreated end times universe which we've talked about before. But it's related to both of those things. Right? It's related to the original perfect creation, Eden, and the recreated end of time universe, the new heavens and new earth. Again, do you remember the other term I introduced you to last week that I used on Sunday morning, the word uh, typology? Anybody remember that word? We talked about it. I wrote it on the board, even, right? Uh, it's a foreshadowing. What is a, what is a type? When we say, what is typology or a type? This is what it is it's a foreshadowing, and a type is a shadow, right, or a picture. Um, And and an anti-type is the substance. The type is the picture that shadows the substance. The anti-type is the real thing. Well, this is a typological relationship we see when it involves the land. You'll see this in your notes. In this relationship, the promised land is the type. Yes, the promised land here to Abraham is a real historical location, and it will indeed be occupied by his descendants but God also intends for it to serve as a type, a picture that foreshadows a greater reality to come. So, where you see type under there, write the Promised Land, because that is the type that we see in this particular instance. The anti type is the new creation. So, the Promised Land is the type, the anti type is the new creation. Remember, the Promised Land is the picture, it's the shadow. The New creation is the substance. It's the real thing. It's what the type is pointing toward. It's meant to show that God is reversing the fall, that God is reestablishing for himself a people who will live in a certain place under his rule and blessing, (coughs) like Adam and Eve once did. No, it's not the complete return to paradise, but it is a foreshadowing of it. Abraham and his immediate descendants understood this, right? Read that text someone, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 8 through 10, it's in your notes if you don't need to turn me out. Put your hand up. Go ahead, Miss Shelley. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out in a place so she would receive and inherit him. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which had foundations to build her and make her his own. Okay, so listen, did you see that? They lived in tents like pilgrims because they knew that their real home was the future, in heaven. Not now in this world, even though that very land was promised to them. Then in Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 through 16, we read this. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were... Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Secondly, notice verse 2. It says that not only God promised Abraham a land, but God (coughs) will make of Abraham a great nation or a great people. God promised this to Abraham. And understanding, again, the development of the kingdom of God, this nation is God's people. There's a lot that could be said here, but suffice for now to say that what God is promising here is that from Abraham will descend that godly line which originated with the woman Eve, who will eventually give birth to the Savior of the world. That's clear from verse 3, right? Abundantly clear. While Abraham and his descendants make up one family, one nation, the blessing here in verse 3 is for who? Who's blessed according to verse 3, chapter 12? All the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Why? For through God's special relationship with Abraham's descendants, anyone, anywhere can repent of their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, eternal life, a relationship with God. Again, just like with the land, a larger, greater reality is in view here. For in that new heavens and in that new earth, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation what's worth pointing out here again according to verse 3 chapter 12 is is the corporate aspect of god's people this is all throughout the bible friend strictly speaking hear me god is not in the business of building individuals but rather a community of individuals whether it's in the old testament israel or the church today god's people again are a corporate identity Of course they're made up of individuals. Yes, we celebrate that. But no individual is called in isolation from the rest. The individuals are part of a greater community. And that unity is not only theological, but it's meant to be experienced where? In the local church... (laughs) We can experience that now. We are corporately a community of individuals that God has set apart and called for His purpose unto His glory. Christians are called to be Christians in fellowship and community with other Christians. There's no room in God's economy for solitary mavericks, but members that make up a healthy body. So let's continue now to think about God's people as we look at really what is their primary characteristic. Anybody want to guess what their primary characteristic is? You can say, no, we'd rather not have you tell us if you'd want. I mean, that's that's an answer. It's something. Unity, Unity is a good guess, but that's not what we're looking for. Righteous. Uh, something that they gave... And it was accredited them as righteousness. Or actually something that they were given and they displayed and it was credited as righteousness. Faith. There we go. This is... Hey, Faith. How are you? Uh, This is their primary characteristic. This is what sets them apart. Which is really, when you think about the story and you look and see Israel, you think, really? That's what sets them apart? Uh, okay, well, that's true. Because we turn to chapter 15 particularly. In fact, let's go ahead and do that. Just turn one page over, if you're in my Bible, to chapter 15. And look at verse uh, 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, look at what it says. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, in the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is... My heir. So Abraham was actually, uh, he was actually 75 years old when the promises of Genesis chapter 12 were made. And his entire life, his wife Sarah, we knew, uh, had been barren. And now he's beginning to doubt Lord, will I ever have a son? Let alone the promise that you said, the nation worth of sons. And so what does God do? He reaffirms his promise to Abram in verse 5 of Genesis fifteen five. 5. That's what he says. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now now it says in verse 6, which is pivotal, underline that, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Yes, sorry. Abraham (laughs) is counted righteous in the sight of God because of his faith. This is good news for Abraham. After all, really, what have we seen about mankind up to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15? Failure. They're kind of awful, right? <laughs> like, they're, they're kind of just terrible all the time, and yet this is something that shows us uh, a little bit of good news. Abraham now, listen, he's a sinner just like everybody else. We'll see that very soon. But he's counted righteous because he has faith in God. Now, this is a doctrine that Paul will talk about a lot in the New Testament. In Romans 4 and Galatians 3, Paul uses this very verse to prove that the only way anyone can be righteous in the sight of God is through faith faith, and faith alone. This is important because the only way we can escape the coming wrath of God, which, remember, was pictured as a type in the ark in the story of Noah's flood, is by being righteous as God sees us. So the Bible is clear that no one can ever, through their good behaviour or good deeds, or church attendance, or baptism, or anything in themselves, earn and inquire the righteousness necessary to be seen as righteous in God's eyes. Even our most righteous acts among nothing are nothing more than what? Filthy, Filthy rags. rags before this infinite holy God. Therefore, the only way we're going to be saved is if righteousness is freely given to us from God. Which we apprehend by faith alone. You've got two texts there that I would encourage you to read in Romans one sixteen through seventeen and in Romans three twenty one through twenty six, which I think will be an encouragement to you to prove that's just not my opinion. That's what Paul actually writes and says very clearly in the text. So let's now consider, as we've considered God's people and God's land, what do we leave out? God's rule. All right. Let's turn to consider God's rule over His kingdom. Part of his rule over his kingdom is his faithfulness to his promises. To give Abraham confidence that God will keep his promise, he does something remarkable. He establishes and enters into a covenant with Abraham. You've ever heard that word said in church before? It's a very important word. A covenant. Uh, In this context, that's your next fill in the blank, by the way. A covenant in this context is a solemn bond and agreement between two parties With terms, conditions, and even penalty. Now, what happens next in this particular text, I would say behind the sacrifice of Isaac is my second favorite story in all of Genesis because it's just actually remarkable when you consider historical context because in the ancient near east i don't know if you know this it's common it was a common event for covenants to exist between nations or kingdoms and what would happen is there would be this great powerful authoritative lord who is also known as a suzerain uh, who reigned over a smaller area or a smaller nation and the subordinate lord otherwise known as a vassal uh, which last week i mentioned the word vassal and a church member said are you saying vessel weird or is that natural? Yeah. So I uh, need to explain the covenant more. This is why we're doing this. The subordinate lord, otherwise known as a vassal, he would get protection and military aid and all such things. And the authoritative, more powerful lord or the suzerain would receive in that covenant tribute, taxes, and an oath of fidelity. And the terms were usually laid down in some document and there would be witnesses and some sort of sign or omen to remember the covenant that was made between the larger authority, the suzerain, and the little smaller one, the vassal. And then there would be a covenant-making ceremony where the weaker lord, the vassal, would walk between the carcasses of animals cut in half. And it was a symbol of the oath being taken that they would die just like the hacked animals on the, lying on the ground if they broke the covenant. So you understand why we call marriage a covenant, don't you? Because there are oaths made, you know, ceremony, witnesses, documents, symbols of the marriage being wedding rings, and the covenant is insoluble until one of the married couple dies. But listen, there's a major difference between a marriage covenant and the type of covenant I'm describing here. There's a major difference, and the major difference is that this covenant described here in the text that we're going to look at carries with it the curse of death as a penalty for breaking it. The kind of covenant I'm describing carries with it a curse that if anyone breaks the covenant, they must be put to death. Of course, we we know the Bible frowns upon adultery and divorce, but they do not result in execution for the unfaithful party. These covenants do. Now, this is what's astounding here. Notice what God in response does to Abraham's question in chapter 15, verse 8. Abraham asked, How can I know, Lord? So look, even though he had faith, still wasn't already, we're already seeing signs, it's not a perfect faith, right? And then look at verses 9 and 10 at what happens. So he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer and a three year old female goat. A ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Poor pigeon. Addy would hate this verse. Uh, then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now in verse 13, you'll see there that God says, No, certainly. Uh, what God is about to do with these cut up animals is for the purpose of of assuring Abraham of the veracity of God's promises. And then in verses 17 through 21, there's a shocking scene that takes place. Smoke and fire, throughout the Bible, they're always symbols of God's presence. Remember, God is spirit. He has no physical form. In fact, if you want to know what God looks like as a man... Jesus. Jesus, absolutely. Uh, so to demonstrate his very real presence in a place, he would often use smoke and fire. And, and so, what does God do? As he presents himself in this form, in, in verses seventeen to 29, here's remarkable: God Himself passes between the dead carcasses. What, you remember what I said earlier about the covenant making ceremony? Who was it that passed through the dead carcasses? The vassal. The vassal. The vassal. Why? To prove that if I break this covenant, since I'm the weaker one, if I break this covenant, let me die like these animal carcasses. God is saying, Abraham, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't fulfill my promises to you. May I be cut in half, bloody, mangled on the ground, food for the buzzards, if I do not keep my word to you and your seed, Abraham. Now, do you think that reassured Abraham's faith and confidence in God? Amen. I would think so. You bet it did. Would he so powerful that he created the universe out of ex nihilo? Nothing ever allowed himself to fall under such a curse. Is it even possible for God to die like that, or or die? Period. It, and the whole scene is meant to drive into Abraham's mind and ours that these covenant promises can never go unfulfilled. Oops. What God, what God has accomplished and promised to his people is going to come to pass. Part of God's rule over his people is the blessing of his faithfulness. We're actually going to spend an entire class on the covenants and looking forward to that. But for now, we see that God is in covenant with Abraham. He ratifies that covenant. It's a covenant that will bless all the nations of the world as we read in Genesis 12. So, so we're going to move down to chapter 25 and 26 And there we read about how the covenant promise is going to be passed along to Abraham's son, Isaac, right? And then again, passed along to his son, Jacob, in chapter 35. So listen, the continuance of this covenant with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's going to be really the big chunk there of the rest of Genesis. But but as we move on from Abraham, I want you to keep in mind, it's very important... We always have Genesis 3.15 in the back of our minds. The promise that a Savior is going to be born, who will destroy the works of the devil, will save many people. That is what's driving the narrative. That promise of a Savior, as we saw in chapter 12, it's carried on in Abraham's bloodline. So as Abraham is finally able to have a son with his wife, Sarah, we, the readers, we we begin to wonder, is this son the Savior that was promised? Is Isaac the one in whom the promises are fulfilled? Well, as we read on, we find that the answer to that is a hard no. Right? Isaac makes some of the same mistakes his father made. He dies having not brought humanity back in full reconciliation with God. But he doesn't die without an heir through whom the promises can't continue. But again, we're left wondering as soon as it's said that Rebecca's pregnant. She has gonna have twins. We're wondering, okay, is Esau the one who received the blessing and carried the kingdom of God forward? He is, after all, the firstborn. Surprisingly, the answer to that is no. No. his younger brother, Jacob, is the heir of the covenant. God has, through his free choice, decided that it is through Jacob that his plan of redemption will continue. That's what we see in Genesis 25, 19 through. 34 now listen that God has chosen who will be in a special covenant relationship with him and will populate the kingdom he is recreating it's one of the more controversial doctrines in the Bible let me say that it's the doctrine of election maybe you've heard of it maybe you haven't it's controversial and that's okay it's tough it's difficult but it's the doctrine that some will be given grace and those some are chosen by God purely on the grounds of grace and not on the grounds of Of anything that they've done. And and controversial as it is, so it is. And and it's important for us to understand, and I hope you see why. In fact, go ahead and turn to chapter 25 of Genesis. Chapter 25. And read for me, if you will, verses 22 and 23. Somebody who gets there and wants to slip a hand up for me. Are you reading it over to see if there's any hard words before you... That's the
1: thing, that's okay. That's okay.
0: Genesis 22 and 23. Go ahead, yes. Um, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, that might not sound initially as though God is favoring one of the twins. He may just be making a prediction here. Not quite, right? Uh, God is saying that the younger son, Jacob, will receive the promises made to Abraham and Isaac. And through Jacob, the plan of redemption will move forward. Jacob will be the son of favor, the one whose descendants will possess the land and bless the world. And so we're left asking why right? Why? why would God choose one son over the other was Jacob more righteous than his twin brother Esau um hard no right in fact this is what really brought me to this doctrine to understand it because I, I read the story of Jacob and I thought reading this I thought well certainly uh, Jacob's going to be like his father Isaac and father Abraham and have times of real faithfulness to God Jacob's a weasel like, he's just awful. Like, he just, he really doesn't do anything right. You read the following chapters, and that's what you see. If you think Jacob was chosen because he was more righteous than Esau or more faithful God, then, then what you'll read in the rest of Jacob's story is going to become very confusing for you. In fact, Paul actually points out for us the reason God chose Jacob. And, and, and Corey read this in, in Sunday on Sunday, Romans chapter 9. It says, When Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, or not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Did you hear that? I mean, that, that's, that wrestles something within us, doesn't it? God chose Jacob before either twin had done anything good or bad. And the reason he chose Jacob was so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So we have to ask, okay, what's that purpose? And here it is. The purpose is so that inclusion in the covenant community and receiving the gifts of God might come, as he says, not of works, but of him who calls. Guys, just like we heard with Abraham and his faith, no one will earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. So the next question becomes, well, why doesn't God base entrance into his kingdom by or upon works? Why can't anyone earn their way in? Well, the first answer to that would have to be uh, because no one could ever reach the standard of perfect holiness required to ascend To the presence of God. There's a verse in Psalm 24 which I love so much. It asks this question Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And here's the question Who can come into the presence of God? And it's very easy to come into the presence of God. You just need to have clean hands, a pure heart, never lift your soul up to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Here's the problem with that not one of us in here has clean hands. We all have impure hearts. We've all lifted up our souls to an idol and sworn deceitfully. So we're disqualified. Mankind is disqualified. But on a deeper level, Paul really tells us in Ephesians why God is so deliberate to choose his people and give them the kingdom by grace alone. Ephesians 2 is pivotal. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Why? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So secondly, God doesn't base entrance into his kingdom on works so that God would be glorified for the greatness of His grace. Friends, recognize, if you could add one thing to your salvation, you are diminishing the greatness of God's grace. You are actually robbing grace from the giver of grace. In fact, I would argue, you have to redefine grace. Grace can no longer be unmerited favor. It has to turn into, well, mostly unmerited favor. Right? Right? <laughs> A lot of unmerited favor, but leaving a little room for you. That's not the definition of grace. No one will ever come into God's kingdom and stand before him and boast that they made it there by their own effort, as though God owed them his kingdom. God will be no man's debtor. He's always Lord. He's always benefactor. We're always beneficiaries. We've got no rights over God. We are all rebels, and if we get anything good from God, it is by pure, 100%, unadulterated, vintage grace. This grace is to God's glory. Just as we saw that God created the universe and humanity for his glory, it's therefore no surprise that the kingdom of God and the humanity he's recreating is done in a manner that most glorifies him by his grace. And you know what God's grace is meant to do? humble us because it causes us to know that we've got nothing to commend ourselves to God with and it's intended to give God glory for how kind he's been to us who know him through his son and are included in his gracious kingdom even as Moses reminds the very descendants of Jacob years later in Deuteronomy 7 7 and 9 the Lord did not set his love on you Israel he's saying nor choose you Israel because you were more numbered than the other people because you're the least of the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, as we continue on in Genesis, the story of the seed needs to be kept in focus here. So how do we keep it here? From here, we, we want to consider now how the promised covenant continues in Jacob's sons. For Jacob, is actually the beginning to grow in this really great nation that God promised would come from Abraham's descendants. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. twelve, that's right, twelve, right? Whose subsequent families were the beginning of the great covenant people known as Jacob's second name? Israel. The rest of Genesis will now be concerned with Jacob's sons, particularly the story of one son. Anybody know? Joseph. And Joseph's story is an amazing one. How are we doing on time? We're okay. Uh, It's an amazing one. For a while, we're made to think that maybe this is the one seed. Maybe this is the guy who comes to the world to be the savior of the world. We think that because through his wisdom with many people, especially the covenant family and preserving a famine, uh, preserving them from a famine, but it will turn out that Joseph's only a savior of sorts. Joseph's not the ultimate one. He's not the the one Savior promised. Why? Because he can't finally conquer death because he ends up dying just like everybody else does. But nonetheless, he's a type of Savior. And in that way, remember typology, he prefigures or points to or is a foreshadow of Christ. In fact, there will be many figures in the Old Testament who are saviors to the covenant people and to others of sorts. Each of these will be prefigurements of the greater Savior who will not save from near famine, that saves from sin, death, Satan, and hell. So the next major text there is Genesis 37, 2 through 30. We go through that story. Um, you see that story really just un- uh, unpacked there in that little thing right here. What is this called? A diagram? All right, good. Um, you see that, and you know it pretty well. Um, so we can we can walk through the most of it. I really want to point your attention toward, toward the end at Genesis 45, because there's many things that are going on. Obviously, we see Joseph had a dream. Brothers didn't like the dream, so they sold him in slavery. He's taken to Egypt as a slave. He works his way up as Potiphar's best slave, but then Potiphar's wife is a loony. So... Uh, he then is betrayed by her and then he's thrown in jail uh, she's a home wrecker and then he inter- interprets dreams for Pharaoh's servants he's forgotten by Pharaoh's servants shown unfaithfulness again but he's remembered when it comes time to interpret dreams for Pharaoh he rises up he becomes second to all the land of Egypt he's reunited with the family and he is the way by which they are preserved and saved from the family there you go uh, so there are many things going on in the story but I just want to look at one thing I want you to look at Joseph's response when he encounters his brothers again after all his troubles do you know it? Chapter 45, verses 4 and 5, what does he say? Do you remember? You meant this for evil, but God meant for Yes. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. good. Now, this is just remarkable. Because Joseph says, listen, you're the ones that sold me into slavery. So they cannot escape responsibility for their actions. But in the same breath, he says that God sent him before them. The reason? To preserve life from the famine. He says something similar in chapter 50, verses 19 through 20. And so what we learn here, and this is your fill in the blank, is humans play a real role in the events of life. They play a real role in the events of life, and they also have a real responsibility for what they do. They play a real role and have a real responsibility, either good or evil. And yet, in an ultimate sense, we also see God superintends how many events in the universe? All, All, right? Again, just judge it by the length of space you got there. Admittedly, listen, sometimes it's very hard to know how God's in control when so many tragic things happen. Isn't it? We've all experienced that. We make no claim to understand that we can understand what God's doing all the time. It's, It's often a mystery indeed. But we can be assured, friends, that the universe is not spinning out of control of its creator. And he is indeed doing good things in every situation no matter how hard it is to see that. Even Joseph, I'm so sure that in his prison cell, he wondered, God, what in the world are you doing here? Why was this happening to him? Why did things have to turn out this way? But nonetheless, here at the end, Joseph can see what God was doing, preparing to save many lives through Joseph, a great mystery indeed, that Romans eight twenty eight verse is so important here. And we know that God works all, together, all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All right, last thing and then we're done. Um, Joseph has performed his role as prophesied Savior. So we ask is Joseph the one promised back in Genesis 3.15, is he the one we've been waiting for? No. No. Okay then, he's at least the one through whom the promise of seed will continue though, right? No. Who's going to be the promised seed that it will continue through? Judah. Judah, his brother Judah. So that's in chapter 49 verse 8. There's this prophecy there concerning Judah, one of Jacob's sons. There's a language there that's used in Genesis 3.15, putting uh, his foot on the neck of his enemies, right? Uh, So we have a prophecy that through Judah will come a ruler, a king for the people. That king will be the one, God reiterates, who will be the one who will triumph over Satan, crushing his head. Who is that king? That's the easiest question I asked all day. Come on. Jesus. Jesus is the king. Maybe the Sunday school answer, right? (laughs) The words of this prophecy, listen, they're a little vague, admittedly, but this concept comes so clear by the time we get to the rest of the Old Testament. And So while these chapters focus by and large on Joseph, it's actually Joseph's entire story, the whole reason he went through what he went through, so he could preserve the line of Judah. That's it. That the promised seed of the woman through Judah will defeat the seed of the serpent. Judah would have starved if Joseph didn't have to go through that and preserve him in the midst of that famine and God couldn't let that happen why? because it's faithful to his promises so we've added to our understanding of this one seed that he will also be a king to rule over the rest of the people of God and so let's conclude like I told you we would we've seen the genesis of a lot of doctrines here in Genesis right in the beginning of doctrines such as the nature of God, creation, recreation, sins of judgment, the gospel, the land, grace, faith, covenant, election, and the sovereignty of God, and it's all very uplifting. Yet, there's something strange at the end of Genesis. The covenant family, God's people, seem to be growing. He's continued to ratify His covenant with them, and remind them of His covenant. But where are they not? They're not in Israel. not in the land, right? So the covenant family seems to be growing... But they are not in the land. They're in Egypt. Surely God works in mysterious ways. So we ask questions like, what will we do next? Uh, will he bring them back to the land as he promised to do through his covenant with Abraham? What will we do to establish his reign and rule over his people? When is this Savior from Genesis 3.15 going to come into the world? Well, we'll just have to come together next week as we try to go through... The entire book of Exodus next week. The entire book. Um, and keep studying redemptive history as we keep moving through the Old Testament. Let me encourage you. Listen, there are questions there, four questions. And, it, and here's the beauty: is remember why we're doing this. I'm sorry, five questions on this one? Next question. Okay. Um, there, are, there are questions there, and remember why we're doing this. Why? What's our call as Christians? To go in the disciples, right? So, again, we answer these questions so that we're starting to look at how we can apply this. We're starting to look at what we need to know. And not only that, the beauty of these questions is that each one of them, or most of them, all you have to do is flip through your notes to find the answer. Right? That that you have been given enough in your notes, Lord willing, that you can take some of this and reproduce it in whatever circle you find yourself in, whether it's to your family your co-workers, to a new member within the church who's a new Christian, whoever it may be, in your children's church, in your Sunday schools, and wherever you're serving at Great Gables, this is the purpose of what we're doing here tonight, that you would take the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and entrust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Any questions or comments about what's being said tonight or the bazillion chapters of Genesis we covered? Did I miss anything? Probably just a little bit alright if you do of course discussion is always welcome after uh, the service tonight but let me go ahead and pray for you, you. Lord just thank you what what a beautiful picture is we just surveyed the first book of the Bible and the Lord it takes us three weeks even just to survey because there's so much depth here and we see Lord this redemptive historical narrative this picture of how you've promised uh, to save sinners like us through the sending of your seed your son King Jesus and you fulfill that promise thank you are a God who is faithful to his promises. Thank you, Father, uh, Lord, that you work all things for good for those who love you call are called according to your purpose. And thank you that it must be by grace alone, by through faith alone, that we enter into the kingdom, lest we would be able to boast of anything besides the goodness and faithfulness of our God. Be with us as we, uh, we saturate ourselves with these wonderful doctrines and with your word. And Lord, allow these tools to help us read our Bibles more clearly, always thinking of Christ purpose that we've been given to make disciples among all the nations. We love you, Lord. I thank you for this church and for their involvement tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, God.